Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Yeah? Doing well? All right. Uh, it's reported that when Sir Edmund Hillary conquered Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, in, uh, what was it, uh, 1953 with Tenzin Norgay, that he planted a symbol at the summit at the top of the world, and that symbol was a small crucifix. Hillary was not an overly religious man. Uh, he planted the cross. Maybe he did it to humbly show uh, in his moment of greatest triumph that there was somebody bigger than him. We don't really know why he did it. Whatever he was thinking, his choice of a symbol provides insight to us in how Jesus has affected our culture. Historically, the cross was an instrument of Roman brutality to humiliate people. Now it stands as a symbol of true greatness. We're studying 1 John, written in a time when the culture celebrated greatness and honor as much as any time in all of history, yet Christianity during that time radically changed the definition of greatness to humility. In Jesus' time, the Greco-Romans did not include humility in the top ten list of their virtues that they valued. In fact, the idea of humility was associated with the failure and shame with being crushed and debased. And yet, today, humility would likely make it on many, if not most, of the top ten virtue lists. Aristotle encapsulated the Greek values very well when he said, uh, he, he asserted that honor and reputation are among the most pleasant things one can contemplate and attain for oneself. And therefore, for someone to achieve great things, it was only right and proper that they be given the recognition in a public acclamation in a way that they deserve. You were in that day to humble yourselves only before the gods, primarily because they could kill you. And it was also advisable for you to humble yourself before the emperor for the same reason. But humility was something uh, to humble yourself before someone of equal or someone lesser to you was absolutely disdained of no value as looked down upon in Jesus' day. This is not to say that people were not modest in the ancient world. Uh, the Romans distinguished modesty from humility, and modesty in their minds was good. It showed dignified restraint. But humility, lowering yourself, that was shameful. Ancient Greeks and Romans thought nothing about praising themselves in public or better still getting praise from other people. Nowadays, we push back on that kind of self-flattery, don't we? Even when someone's trying to be subtle about it, like the humble brags. Do you ever look up humble brags on social media and for some entertainment? Well, we're going to do a little bit of that today, like, like this one. Uh, grades, hashtag blessed. Translation. Look, I'm smarter than you, right? Or this, not exactly my dream car, but I'm still feeling hashtag blessed. In other words, your dream car is trash to me, right? Or this one, today I fed five street people, brought a sick man to the hospital, helped a lady get her stolen wallet back, and adopted a kitten, hashtag blessed. 
In other words, I'm basically an angel and the world needs to know it, right? Or how about this one? I love baristas who give you free coffee and write sweet notes on your cup. Hashtag blessed for the prettiest girl I'll see today. Oh, isn't that sweet? Translation. I'm so stinking hot, I get free stuff. How about you? <laughs> Sounds like this person's theme song needs to be Carly Simon's You're So Vain. It's interesting to note that in 2017, uh, Harvard did a study on humble brags. And what they discovered was that people who use humble brags in social media increased the number of people who disliked them and did not trust them. So how did culture move in the Rome, from the Roman time of prizing public honor and despising humility to despising self-aggrandizement and prizing humility like the early Christian church? We see in the Old Testament this definite theme of valuing the humble. We see it in leaders like Moses. We're praised for being meek and humble. And this attitude is most clearly seen in Jesus turning upside down the ancient attitudes about what greatness really is. Last week we saw the idea of greatness challenged when John and the other disciples were arguing over who is greatest. And Jesus' response was to bring a child right into their midst and put him on his lap and say, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you need to become like a child. Elsewhere in Matthew 20, Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus basically is saying that true greatness consists in self-sacrifice on behalf of others, his impending martyrdom being the prime example. This example, above all else, establishes humility as a Christian virtue. Crucifixion was the ancient world's ultimate punishment, reserved only for people upon whom you wanted to bring the greatest level of shame and brutality. This is the death that the followers of Jesus saw him face. The greatest man ever known being brought down to the lowest place the Roman world could design, crucifixion. And Jesus' choice is even more significant in the context of the honor culture of the day, when honor in that day was proof of merit. Shame was proof of worthlessness. And this left the disciples with two choices, two options in how to respond. Either Jesus was not as great as they had thought by proof of his insignificance and lack of merit because of being crucified and shamed, or they had to redefine greatness and what it really means. Opponents of Jesus in Christianity early on jumped onto option one, claiming Jesus is the great pretender evidenced by his death. And therefore, Paul says in several places, the foolishness of the cross to the Greeks. He talks about the foolishness of the cross to the Greeks. Christians took the other option. For them, the crucifixion was evidence that Jesus' greatness can only be expressed by one so humble, the noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others to pay the debt for someone else. So First John, John writes in First John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We're going to get more into living in this kind of life as we explore First John. But for today, we're going to focus on humility. It has a lot to do with how we view others and ourselves. Jesus' death on the cross as God in the flesh caused a humility revolution. Greatness was completely redefined. If the greatest man who had ever been known chose to forego the status for the good of others, greatness must consist in humility and serving others. See, what was once a shameful across is now a symbol of hope and honor and freedom. The lowest point becomes the highest point, and so it was right for Sir Edmund Hillary to place a crucifix at the top of the world. In our series, The Fearless Life, our purpose is to increase confidence in each and every one of us to live life confidently and well following Jesus. And as such, we're going to pull in today more about understanding this radical virtue that Jesus called humility. Because as we noted last week, when Jesus says in Matthew 18, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So verse 3, which asks us to become like children, is significantly defined by verse 4, which says, whoever humbles himself. Or as Jesus says it even more with more clarity and gravitas in Luke 18, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying humility is the key to greatness. Therefore, let's explore it. What what does it mean to really be humble? Before we get to a definition, I want you to think about, for a minute, a time you felt humble. What were you doing when you felt humble? And how did you feel? When I think of feeling humble, I think immediately of playing trumpet. After having in high school won a bunch of uh, regional and state contest awards for playing trumpet, played regularly before large crowds, played taps at funerals in the winter in Minnesota when it was 10 below zero, even though a Christmas story says never put your mouth and tongue on something metal when it's that cold. Somehow we did that anyway and played taps. There came this day along where I was to play the recessional at a wedding of a friend of mine. You know, that big moment when they announce the bride and the groom and everybody's standing and cheering and they're walking out and all the grandeur and all that kind of stuff going on. And I totally bombed. A Canadian goose would have sounded better than I did on the trumpet that day. I was so bad. How bad were you, Ross? A friend in the wedding party who had accidentally knocked my trumpet to the ground without me knowing it right before the service found me out back sulking behind the church afterward and said, I'm so sorry I broke your trumpet. It was so bad he thought I'd broken my trumpet. My trumpet was perfectly fine. I was just horrible. I wanted to crawl into a hole and never be seen again in public. Yet, this is not biblical humility. This is humiliation. Two very different things. 
Humiliation makes us feel less than, put down, weak, embarrassed, lacking in confidence. Whereas biblical humility, we will see, is intended to leave us feeling settled inside and content and loved and free and confident. Have you noticed how humility so often gets twisted in the church world? For example, someone in the church sings really beautifully on Sunday, and you go up to them after the church service, and you say what? You say, you have such a beautiful voice. And their response is, oh, no, it's not me, it's the Lord. And you think in your mind, well, that's weird because I thought God's voice would sound a whole lot better than that. I have a longtime pastor friend. Whenever I compliment him on something he does well, he drops his head, he looks down, he tries not to smile, and you can see the smile trying to break out. And he just says, it's not me, it's all God. And I just want to shake him. I just want to say to him, I think God feels really good about what you just did right now, and I think God would be quite happy if you smiled. I like watching uh, gifted athletes who show humility, like, like the golfer who wins the tournament. He doesn't berate himself, nor does he run around patting himself on the back and exclaiming how good he is. He simply admits he was hitting his putts firmly, he was driving his irons well, and he was keeping his drive and play, and, and he was frankly just enjoying the day. That's, I think, a glimpse, an imperfect glimpse of godly humility which doesn't deny the gifts and strengths you've been given. If you deny the power you've been given, you lie. If you have a fine voice, to depreciate that voice is to show a lack of appreciation. Humility has us recognize and appreciate and use the talents God has given us, leading us to what I think is a good starting definition for humility, and that's this. Humility is having a healthy, realistic view of ourselves, of others, and of God that begins in realizing God is God and we are not. Let's examine quickly this further, looking at a number of what I think are foundational statements we see in 1 John to expand our understanding of what humility is. And the first one is this. Humility is confidence in being fully known. John starts his letter out by talking about walking in the light. He says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What's he saying there? He's saying this, living a humble life is living with nothing hidden. We are who we are, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, all out there in honesty. If there's a part of yourself that you feel like you have to hide, are compelled to hide, you are not free to be who you are, not free even to begin to grow. Certainly, we don't let everyone know everything about us, but are you free enough to let the reasonably safe people in your life truly in with nothing hidden? 
See, when we hide something, it has more power over us. If we struggle with sin, whatever it is, maybe you deal with anger and you keep blowing up, but your friends in your small group don't know that you struggle with that. It just comes out at work or comes out with your spouse at home, or, or maybe you struggle with whatever it is, just fill in the blank, but, but no one knows and you're hiding. Why do your friends and fellow followers of Jesus not know about your struggles? It's because you're fearful of what they'll think of you, right? As long as sin sin is hidden, it retains so much more power over you to hold you back in life. As long as it's hidden, you can't even fully see the consequences or the way out of it. Humility begins by letting things come into the light, being real, being honest, being fully known. And yes, part of that is repentance and seeking forgiveness. But it's bigger than that. It's learning to be unafraid, to be known, to be examined, to be challenged, to be confronted, to be seen. Jesus actually tells a story that both illustrates this first foundational statement and leads us to the next point of what we're going to talk about in humility. Interestingly enough, immediately following this story, Jesus again makes this invitation for us to be like a child. In Luke 18, it says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing all by himself, prayed thus. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you this, man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, so get this picture. What we have is the most honored person in the community, the Pharisee. This guy who lives publicly above reproach in all of his morals and ethics according to the law of God in the Bible. He has the first five books of the Bible memorized word for word. He is the one everyone else looks to to define in both word and deed what righteous, godly living looks like. He looks good outwardly, inwardly, It's a different story. His heart is full of pride and arrogance. And then we have this tax collector who in truth is a really bad man. I mean, tax collectors in Israel were typically Jews, so they were already traitors against their own country, working for the oppressors. They were swindlers, this kind, the kind of guy who made his living by overcharging people for their taxes and became wealthy off the backs of widows and honest, hardworking people. That's what it says when you study the way tax collectors operated in that era. This was the guy who came into the church and got everyone to sign up for the Ponzi scheme. He was a bad, swindling, traitorous guy. And which one of the men went away right with God? Jesus says the one who was 
a treacherous, truly bad man, but who was honest and came into the light, admitting he was what he was with God. Humility starts by coming into the light. And Jesus is helping us understand humility and comparing the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he's pointing out in this one really, I think, central issue to the whole issue of what humility is. And it's this, it's trust. Jesus points out that pride and humility are an issue of where our trust is placed. Prideful people place their trust where? Well, Luke answers that in the intro to the parable when he says, this is a parable about those who trusted in themselves. Humility is an issue of trust. Where is your trust? In whom is your trust? If we live like the Pharisee, we'll be constantly comparing and defending ourselves. Our roller coaster life will be, will be up when we're doing well and we'll be down when we don't compare well. But if you live like a child, humble, you know your value and you trust your parents at all times. Humility has nothing to do with self-deprecation, feeling bad about how weak you are or how feeble you feel in life. Rather, humility is an issue of trust and is intended to build solid confidence in our lives, which leads us to the second point. Humility is confidence in God. Whoever you trust is the epicenter of where your focus and confidence in life will be, the basis of it. So John in 1 John 2 defines humility when he writes, and he says, and now little children. So again, we talked last week of the invitation to be humble as as a child to take that identity. But John here is saying not just any child, he's saying a little child, a child who thinks their parents know everything and has everything under control. While that human illustration obviously breaks down because of our earthly parents are imperfect, God is not that way at all. He is far beyond us in love and power and thought and wisdom. So John says, and now, little children, abide in him. Well, in the context of little children, think about that abiding thing. It's, it's like the comfort we see with little children and babies and toddlers. All kids have a difficult time, don't they, uh, from time to time, leaving mom and dad. That's the reason sometimes it can be difficult to drop them off at the babysitter or the child care or, or at the nursery or preschool here at church. Why? Because they have confidence that mom and dad can make everything okay. They trust you. They want you. That's what abiding is. And now, little children, John says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Humility is based in confidence in God, not in identifying how horribly we are in life or or criticizing where we lack in areas of our life. Humility leads us to a profound awareness that we are his, and we abide and always want to be in his presence and follow him. Last week, we started and ended it with a verse in 1 John 3. What we read last week was, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Today, I want to examine the next couple verses that go on immediately after that, where John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Did you catch what John just said? Now we are children of God. 
Humility is confidence in who you are right now. See, I don't know about you, but far too much of my life and energy and stress has been focused on being frustrated about where I am as a person right now in my skills, in my patience, in my communication, in my leadership, in my career right now, always pressing to be something better, something bigger, always focused on the next problem to solve or the next area to grow in. It's obviously important, isn't it, in life to be intentional about growth. But the heart of godly humility is being secure and at peace with where you are right now. Being okay with who you are right now. God's loved child now. Happy now. Forgiven now. Gifted by God now. And so that we can receive those gifts with joy now. Because we are secure As God's children, we can live at peace and with joy now in the yet unfinished of life. Even before we know all about what our future is going to look like, isn't that freeing for us? Take some time maybe to examine your goals and dreams for life, especially those goals and dreams that often leave you frustrated and regularly stressed, wondering if you can get there, knowing you are working too hard and too driven to get there. God's got it. Humility is trust, having confidence that God's got it. No matter where things stand now in the process in that dream, no matter if it looks like you want it to look like or completely different, God's got it. Recently, I went to talk and pray with Tom Charlie Jr., who was battling ALS, a, a horrible disease for which there is no medical cure. Tom and his family and many of you have been and are continuing to pray for healing. And as I was preparing to leave, uh, Tom got my attention and struggled to say, he said, Ross, the most peace-giving thing for me in this process that has helped me face each day and just be present in the moment, whatever is going on, has been something you said to me the first time you stopped by and prayed for me. And obviously made me curious. I said, well, what is it? And he said, you told me to relax. God's got you. God's got this. Can I just be honest? In that moment, that was one of those moments where you just go, what do you say at a time like this? You know, you, we all face those times where they're just, you just, words feel hollow. You don't know what to say. And a moment where you just, you just hope that what you're going to say is not too, too cliche or too hollow of a platitude. And, and I mean, I, I believe that statement, but, but God used those simple words of awkward reply in a moment to really touch Tom. And here's the point. Tom's journey hasn't been at all what Tom hoped for, believed for, and many others have hoped for and believed for. I know Tom and his family have been so grateful for all of you who have been praying for the Friday men's group, for Tom and Bev's group, the DeVilles, and for the prayer team, and for the School of Kingdom ministry class, and so many other friends, and those of you who have stopped by to visit and pray and care for them in person, thank you for being such a wonderfully caring community and helping them go through this knowing they're not alone. The journey for Tom hasn't been what we hoped for 
or expected. We still don't know exactly what and when of his journey's destination. But God has this. God has this. Even though we don't know what it will look like in the end, God's got it. And that helps us live in the now. Humility is confidence. It is security in who we are right now. But let's also not stop there. Because if we do, we miss one of the most important things both John and Jesus teach us about humility. He goes on and says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And then he goes on. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But... We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So here's how we're going to encapsulate that point. Humility means living with confidence in who you are becoming because of God. That's one of the things we love about the Bible, isn't it? All the stories of ordinary people who God does impossible things through. It's so clear from the biblical record that God has designed and intends for each and every single one of our lives to have good, great things be done through our lives. And sometimes God reveals those things to us in advance, like he did with the promise of David becoming king. This David who was the son who his father didn't even consider worthy enough to be part of Samuel's visit there. Yet Samuel, God works through to choose him and say, you are going to be the next king. So for David, thinking about and talking about being that king and doing great things wasn't pride at all. A humble person actually believes God for great things. A humble person can operate confidently about those things God promises. A humble person can have grand goals that seem way beyond them and live with rock-solid confidence in who they are becoming. If for you, humility or the ideas around it have led you to feeling down on yourself or bad about yourself or anything but confidence and peace and dreaming bigger then your idea of humility isn't God's idea of humility and what he designed you for. See, humility is actually the foundation for finding your sweet spot in life, who you really are and who God is and how you fit best in life and thrive in that place with no need to compete, be driven, and no need to hide or defend anything. It's the sweet spot of being plugged in with God and all the power and the goodness of God in who you are wired to be and how you are to live. Humility is the foundation that allows you to become like Jesus, to be purified, the best version of who you were created to be. See, as a little child, if your dad or mom is for you, who can be against you? 
I mean, your parents and your mind can do anything. We grow up and realize they can't again because they're not perfect. But with God, he is more powerful and good than we think. And so with God, how much more can we be children who live with a humble confidence in God's authority and power to work through you and make you be like him and to do through you and your life and your life things that are greater than you could ever imagine? I mean, what unrestrained joy that can bring to our lives. What expectation and confidence that can bring to our lives. We are loved for who we are right now, and God is the one who will make us who we are becoming so we can live without pretense, without comparison, and with great joy and expectation. And that is what a humility is when we trust God, not yourself. When you do that, you can act more. You can risk more. You can allow yourself to be engaged confidently in things that are way bigger than you, allowing God to pull you and mold you into those bigger things, not out of drivenness, but from a place of peace and acceptance and confidence and trust. That's humility. Humility allows you to discover your ultimate design and walk into the sweet spot of who you really are. And finally, humility sees others with the same value you know God has for you. As we uh, celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. on Monday, I was reminded again of how much I admire his humility. He could have enriched himself and with his charismatic personality and a strategic determination, but he didn't. Instead, MLK made other people big. His cry was a cry for equality for all, not just the blacks. He was intent on raising up everyone, not tearing anyone down. And just like MLK, we are committed to helping others see themselves as God does. Each person is a really big deal. MLK and Jesus were committed to helping people feel big as opposed to things that made them feel small. It's impossible to be humble and not think of other people. It's impossible to be humble and not love other people more than yourself. It's impossible to be humble and not want to bring out the best, the big, the coolest, the most treasured intent of God in people around you. See, before God created the world and everything in it, he thought of you and each and every one of you. The fall of humanity into sin and the resulting brokenness damaged that perfect vision for who he saw each one of us to be. But then Jesus came. And he gives us hope that we can be restored back to that perfect vision if we follow him. So if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be humble like Jesus defines it, you'll be confident and strong in that belief for yourself. And you'll be confident and strong in that belief for others as well. No matter how broken someone is, you will always go looking for the gold in them. I want to invite each of us today to participate in Jesus' humility revolution so that you and I and many others in our community who are not here yet can live with confidence. Confidence in being known, honesty and openness, 
And maybe for you that starts today with the question, is there, is there something you need to talk to God about or, or other people about so that you are no longer hiding it, that you are known? Confidence in God, abiding, resting in His presence. Is there something you need to change so that you focus your trust more on who God is in your life? Confidence in who you are right now. That God's got you so you can live in the present more fully. Is there an area where you struggle to live in the present with contentment and joy? Confidence in who you are becoming. Is there an area where you need to give up the drivenness that you know is unhealthy in your life right now for that future goal? And you just need to receive God's rest and His promise for you right now. And confidence in other people. Is there a way this week that you can join Jesus' humility revolution by making others big? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I just ask that you would come now. Lord, I confess that even as I'm preparing this and speaking, that there are areas where I I struggle to still live in that confidence. And I think we can all find those areas where we struggle to live in that confidence, where we continue to put ourselves down instead of realizing how free we are of the condemnation, of of the shame, of the sin. How confident we can be of where you're taking us in life. So I pray that your spirit would come even as we continue to worship, even as we sing, as we go throughout this week, and that you would build that humble confidence in us. That we would see as you see. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.